0: We'd better pray for each other. Let's pray. Our Father, as your word says, these things were written for our instruction. Those words speak of the Old Testament, and if it's true of the Old Testament, and it is, it is, if possible, even more true of the New Testament. Today's vignette, today's passage, is particularly pointed and instructive to us. Give us ears to hear and to heed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is America where it is? Why is the church where it is? There are many who would say, well, what we really need is better preaching. If only we had better preaching, if only there were men who would boldly stride into the pulpit and preach the word of God, which, by the way, wouldn't it be great if I had brought one over? (laughs) So I just strode into the pulpit with the word of God. And so if we would have men who would stride into the pulpit and preach the word of God, all of it without apology, without toning anything down, red-hot, faithful, if only that would happen. Why, if that would happen, that would really change things. If we just had better preaching. I've heard this countless times. If we just had better preaching, the church would be so different, society would be so different. In fact, uh, one well-known sound brother, I think a number of you would know his name if I said it, which I won't, tweeted just recently these words, If there was more preaching on hell in the pulpits, there would be less of it in the streets. Well, there you go. Just like that. So the reason why there's so much hell in the streets is because there's not more preaching on hell in the pulpits. If there just were, then everything would change. Now, I tell you, if you want to talk about the need for better preaching, I'm right there with you. If you want people to sign a petition that there should be more faithful preaching of the word of God in the pulpit, oh, I'll sign that. But if it goes on to say that were that to happen, certain results are guaranteed and automatic, I'd have to withhold my signature. Think about the day in which Jesus speaks these words. What preaching did they have? John just mentioned what kind of pardon me Jesus just mentioned what kind of preaching they had. In verses 7 through 15, they he says that they had been listening to the preaching of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, none born of women was greater than John the Immerser. They had his preaching. Who else preached? The Son of God, the wisdom of God incarnate. The Son of Man came bringing the very words of God and the very power of God, the powers of the kingdom to come. All of this was the preaching that they had in their generation. And so, was there less hell in the streets because of that? How did they respond? What was the effect of this preaching? What did they do? Did they hear in earnest or did they play games with God? Well, what Jesus says about that generation teaches us a great deal. So let us hear and heed. First, considering together Roman numeral one, the children of that generation, the children of that generation, and we'll find it from the words of our text. Here's how I've translated the picture in verses 16 and 17. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the public squares who, calling to the others, say, we played the flute for you, and yet you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and yet you did not beat your breast. So what is this picture that Jesus paints? Well, it's a picture of children, and we'll see bratty children, perhaps spoiled children. And where are they sitting? They're sitting in the public square. Now, uh, your translation may say marketplace. The, the Greek word agora uh, means more than that because as we read its uses in the New Testament, this was indeed the place where things were bought and sold. But it's also the place where people went to find work, where people went to hire workers. It's it's where business was conducted. It was where people socialized. Even a certain amount of politicking could be done in the agora. So I translated public square square. And these children are sitting there. That's interesting, isn't it, what Jesus talks about. Children often figure into his illustrations and, and birds and flowers. This tells us of, of the things that he noticed, the things that drew his attention. And he's, he's obviously seen this. He speaks of it very vividly. Children sitting there may be waiting while their parents do business, while their parents sell their wares. And the children to occupy their time uh, want to play games with each other. And they call out to each other, Uh, demanding the sorts of games that they want to play. So that's what the picture is. Children calling out to another saying, well, we said, let's play this, but you wouldn't. And we said, let's play that, and you wouldn't. That's the picture. What sparked this picture? Why did Jesus say this? Sometimes uh, passages are so familiar that we forget to notice the connection. We, we lift them out and think about the picture, but we don't put it back in to where the author put it. So look at what Matthew says. Uh, you've got it on your outline. What, what words uh, came right before that? Well, Jesus says that... Uh, there's been no prophet greater than John that he's the greatest of the old dispensation and then he says from his days to now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent ones want to seize it and John was here in the role of Elijah and then Jesus closes that section by saying verse 15 he who has ears let him hear what question does that spark in our minds did they hear who would hear Were they listening? And with that thought, he tells this picture. Now, we need to consider and understand in the picture, who is who in this picture? Who are the children who call, and who are the children who are called to? Now, I've got to tell you that for the longest time, I read it a certain way and read it so comfortably that I I wasn't even aware there was another way of reading it. I didn't even know there was until I saw it. And when I saw it and considered it and, and the reasons for it, it, it changed my view of this passage. I'd always thought that the children who were calling were represented John and Jesus. That, that John says, well, I, I played a funeral dirge for you and you didn't mourn. And Jesus says, well, I piped for you and you wouldn't dance. But I came to see that that's not the most natural reading and not the best reading of this passage. First of all, look at the order. Which children speak first? First. Those who say we played the flute. Who speaks second? The ones who say we sang a dirge. Well, the flute would be more like Jesus' ministry, which didn't feature fasting, and he went to parties. But did he come first, or did John the Baptist come first? John the Baptist came first. So the order isn't the order of their ministries. So that's one thing that suggests a different way of reading it. Another is... um, Just the language. What does Jesus say? He says, but to what shall I liken this generation? He doesn't say, to what shall I liken John and me? Now, it's true he might be saying, to what could I liken the situation of this generation? But notice how he he says it twice, really. He says, but to what shall I liken this generation it is like? So the children are not John and Jesus. The children are this generation. This is what this generation does. This generation is like these children. And the thing that really uh, settled it for me, if you look at the section as I've got it translated for you, and I I would encourage you to use my translation for this in your outline, and you look at verse uh, 15, Jesus says they're sitting in the public squares and calling out to the others, they say, all right, so circle that word say, How many times does the word say occur in these three verses? Well, there it is in verse 17. Where's the next time? Verse 18, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Where's the next time? Verse 19, Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say. So there's one, two, three times the exact same word, legosin in Greek, say in English. The way I used to read it, you'd have to have two different speakers. It's John and Jesus who say the first time, but it's that generation who say the second and third. But it's much simpler to say that say means the same persons each time. It's that generation who who say we piped, we mourned. It's that generation who say he has a demon. It's that generation who say uh, he's a glutton and a drunkard. So, the children who call are this generation. Jesus pictures them as representing uh, represented by these children. Now, remember, he just said. Of that day, and by the way, I could could just ask the question what is this generation? What does it mean by this generation? Well, he, he said in verse 12, from the days of John the Immerser until just now, that's what he's talking about, that generation, that period. And what do they do? Well, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent ones want to seize it. And what did we say that meant? Do you remember? That means that the Uh, leaders and the unbelievers of that day, they wanted to make the kingdom be what they wanted it to be. They wanted to control the message. They wanted to control the agenda. They wanted to try to seize it so that it was theirs and they could determine who's in and who's out and they could shut Jesus up when he says what they don't want to hear. And so do you see how very well that fits children who demand the right to say what game we're going to play? I demand we're going to play Wedding. I demand we're going to play funeral. That's that generation, which he then explains exactly what they say about John and himself. So that's the meaning of this uh, this picture. Let's talk about the application Jesus makes in verses 18 and 19. For, this is how the generation is like that, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a man who's a glutton and a wine guzzler, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners, and yet wisdom is declared righteous by her works. Well, there's two ministries there, two men bringing the word of God. The ministry of John came neither eating nor drinking. What's he talking about? Obviously, John both ate and drank. (laughs) I remember being at a New Year's meeting many years ago with my oldest son, and there was a man who gave a testimony. He said he hadn't had a drink in 80 years. And one of us leaned over to the other and said, How is he still alive? Now, notice I don't tell you which one said that. But my son said, Dad. Well, of course, when he says neither eating nor drinking, he means he didn't have a normal diet and he didn't drink wine like everybody drinks wine. That was just a normal normal beverage in those days. Uh, Luke 1 15 says that he won't drink strong drink or wine. That was unusual, but John wouldn't touch either one because he was a Nazarite. And what does Matthew 3.4 say? It says that his food was what? Locusts and wild honey, crunchy and sweet. And that was his diet, but it was an unusual diet. It was not what most people... Drink, or most people ate. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a very austere, a very strong message. He denounced the Pharisees who came. He spoke of judgment to come. He spoke of the fires that Messiah would bring, the baptism by fire. So it was, it was a very fierce, uh, ascetic ministry. And um, so we also know that they, uh, that they fasted quite a bit. So this, this was John's, uh, John's ministry. He didn't eat a normal diet. He didn't drink wine like everybody else. What about Jesus' ministry, though? The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a man who's a glutton and a wine guzzler, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. Why? Because he ate normal food and he drank wine just like everybody else. In fact, he made wine. He could be found at parties. Where did you find John? John? John was in the wilderness. Where did you find Jesus? Well, uh, Luke, uh, sorry, John chapter 2 is very telling, isn't it? If you read John chapter 2, you immediately think, well, that's the wedding in Cana. Indeed, and we read there that Jesus was invited to this wedding. Would he have been invited to a wedding party if he was a gloomy, sallow-skinned, sunken-cheeked, joyless individual? No, I'm not saying he was a party partier. I'm saying he, was, he wasn't a party destroyer. And it's not the only time you see him at some sort of a party. Why, we just saw that in chapter 9, didn't we? In fact, that's what this reflects. What happened in chapter 9? Jesus had called Matthew the tax collector. What was the first thing Matthew did? He wanted all his friends to meet Jesus. And what sorts of friends did he have? Well, sinners. People judged as, as unacceptable and outside by that society. And there they all were. And who was in the middle of them? Jesus. And who did that offend? Well, it offended both the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. John the, John, John the Baptist's disciples said, Why are you eating when we fast? And the Pharisees said, Why are you eating with them? <laughs> because they're rejected. We, we don't have anything to do with those people. You see? So that's Jesus' ministry. And the two games are the games of wedding and funeral. You, you play a flute because you play a flute at a wedding, and you play a flute and people dance. That's the game the first one a bunch of children demanded to play. And then the other is, will you sing a dirge like you're at a funeral? And then everybody beats his breast in, in, in a display of mourning as people did in those days. Those were the two games. And Jesus and John's ministry were not what they wanted. They were not what they wanted. When they wanted one, they got the other. When they wanted other, they got the one. They did not like the style of John. They did not the, like the style of John. Of Jesus. And that's what they focused on the style. They focused on the periphera and not the heart, which makes us face the grand inconsistency very briefly. In the words of a commentator named R.C.H. Lensky, he says, What they demanded of John, what they demanded of John, they condemned in Jesus. What they condemned in John, they demanded of Jesus. In reality, by both actions, they condemned themselves. They wanted to judge the preachers, and by their judgment, they were judged. That's the grand inconsistency. So what are the two upshots that we take from this? Well, in verse 15, remember, which sparked this story, Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. So the first thing we want to ask is, Who has ears to hear? And we have to note that both preachers preached the same message, didn't they? What was that message? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. They preached that same message, repent. So who listened and who repented? Well, not that generation. Not that generation. No, no. They wanted to play games. They wanted to maintain control. They wanted to oppose their will onto what God wanted. And they wanted to control it. Oh wait, where did we read that? That was verse 12. This kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men try to seize it. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to say what game was being played. When we say funeral, you play funeral. When we say wedding, you play wedding. And John came and they didn't like his style. And Jesus came and he didn't like his style. Why didn't they like their style? Well, really because they didn't like their message. They didn't like what they said. And I want you to notice, I really want you to feel this, get this. This insistence on controlling the game this insistence on controlling the agenda, this insistence on controlling the style of the people who bring God's Word, what is that the opposite of? Repentance. That's the opposite of repentance. Repentance says, I accept your verdict, God. I am guilty and I'm undone. And I throw myself on your mercy. You teach me. And if you can find it in your heart, forgive me and accept me. Repentance comes before God and says, I know I need to start over again. I need to deny my attempt to be my own God, my attempt to be my own Lord. I need to take up my cross and I need to follow Jesus and be taught by Jesus. And I need to be yours. I need to not be mine. But what do they do? You play the game we say. You play it the way we tell you. We want to control. That's the opposite of repentance. And of course, that's the whole problem. The message was repent, and they had no interest in doing that. Uh, you could look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, which is the, the, the culmination of chapters 11 and 12. 11 and 12 show the nation, re, nation's response to Jesus, which is to reject him. And so chapter 13 begins the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom. And when the disciples asked Jesus, why are you talking to them in parables now? Jesus quotes the prophet saying that they have ears, but they barely, they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. It's the judgment of God because they didn't listen to God's word. So the first upshot, the first question, who who has ears to hear? Well, not that generation. And that being the case, it being the case that they would not repent, and that they expected, they well, they wouldn't have even thought it was a question that they had the right to demand what kind of game would be played, then no approach is going to reach them. Do you see that? It doesn't matter whether you come like an ascetic or you come like a happy, joyous individual. That's not the issue. The issue is what? It's the word of God. That's the issue. And so there's no approach that is going to solve the problem of uh, deaf ears and blind eyes and a closed, hardened heart. There's no approach that is going to fix that. So there's the first. Who has ears to hear? Not that generation. Second, who judges whom? Number two, who judges whom? I, I want you to notice the framing device, and I've, I went back a ways in my translation. So look at your... Look at your um, Outline, remind yourself of what verse 2 said. But when John heard in prison the works of the Christ, circle that word works. He sent a question. Now look at verse 15 and the end of the verse. And yet wisdom is declared righteous by her what? By her works. And so that word works frames this section. It's in the first verse. And it's in the last verse of this section, this this first of three cycles in this first of three cycles, sub-cycles, I guess you could say. So that frames it. So what this is telling us is that the works of Jesus Christ objectively make the case and close the case. Wisdom is declared righteous by her works. You look at what Jesus said and did and you know that He is the Son of God. There just is no objective, and do notice that I'm using that word. There is no objective doubt about that. It's been established absolutely. Wisdom, like, like, like uh, we read her personified in the book of Proverbs, and in Proverbs 1, she goes out in the streets, and she's preaching and offering offering her wisdom, and what do men do? Uh, they just are not interested. They just won't pay attention. They just reject it, and she says, yeah, I'll tell you what. Your day will come when I will laugh at your calamity, because you wouldn't listen when I called. And very much like that, we read Jesus saying here, Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, incarnate. Uh, Proverbs has wisdom personified. Jesus is wisdom as a person. And he says, wisdom is declared righteous by her works. Whatever they say about what John the Baptist and he preached, uh, what they did and what they said, was verified as the word of God objectively. Objectively, so listen, whatever men do with it, whatever men do with this word of God, God has spoken. John heralded the nearness of the kingdom. Jesus showed the nearness of the kingdom. So that generation imagines that they are in a position to judge John and Jesus and their ministry. But the reality is that Jesus and John judge that generation. Wisdom is declared righteous, vindicated, shown to be right by her works. Then, with all their talk and all their gainsaying and all their distractions and all their game playing, is nothing against the work of God and the word of God. So, that's the upshot. Who had ears to hear? Nobody. Who judges whom? John and Jesus judge that generation. Because what, what, was, what was the upshot of their, genera- of, of their ministry in that generation? Well, where's John at this point? He's in jail. The powers that be jailed him and eventually beheaded him. And where would Jesus end up in terms of his earthly ministry? Falsely judged, falsely betrayed, falsely tried, falsely condemned, and crucified. Who judges whom? Well, you'd say, looks like that generation judged John and Jesus. I say no. John and Jesus judged that generation. So what are the lessons that we draw from this letter C? Well, the lessons are very varied. I ask you a question, and as I almost always do, I warn you, it's a trick question. Who did it right, John or Jesus? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Both, yes. But they did it very differently, didn't they? So which is the right approach? Well, the right approach is to bring the Word of God. Is the right approach to bring the Word of God dressed in camel hair, living in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey? Or is it living like a normal person, eating normal food, going to social gatherings, being joyous? Which one's the right approach? Well, they're both right approaches. What matters is the Word of God. The issue is the Word of God. Wisdom is justified by her works. So, that what we learn from that is there can be more than one legitimate style. There can be more than one legitimate approach. I mean, if you just have read the Old Testament, you know that, right? What was Jeremiah like? What was Ezekiel like? Opposite. Opposite temperaments. Ezekiel, uh, God says to, to eat his food cooked over dung. And Ezekiel's response is, hmm, but won't that make me unclean? Would that have been your response? <laughs> Won't cooking over poop make, my, make me unclean? And God says, okay, you can have human dung. And Ezekiel says, okay. That's Ezekiel. But what's Jeremiah? He's, he's, he's one who weeps. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He, he wails and weeps over his people. He's very emotional, very open, very different styles. Both prophets of God. Ezra and Nehemiah, which one did it right? When Nehemiah found that the people had rebelled against God, he was very confrontive about it. He tore out some of the beard hairs of the men who were leading this. When Ezra saw the same sort of thing, he tore hair out too, but his own hair. Ezra was an imploder. Nehemiah was an exploder. Which one did it right? They're both in Scripture as as leaders and men of God. So no one should judge anyone by a style. No one should say, well, that's not how John MacArthur does it, or that's not how R.C. Sproul did it, or whatever, because of their styles. That's not the issue. That's never the issue. Style is never the issue. There can be more than one legitimate approach. So the second question grows out of that, and it is, is style the issue? I have a simple answer for you. Is style the issue? Never. Style is never the issue. The word of God is always the issue, no matter what men will say. Now, you'll notice that this generation doesn't say, you know what the thing is? We just don't want to hear what God says. We just want to do everything our own way. And if it means we go to hell, oh, well, they don't say that. Nobody says that. There are a few people say that what they say is, oh, I see, no, 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 no. You See, look look at that lifestyle. Oh, he's obviously, he has a demon. They say, well, that's a way of saying that he's, we, we'd say somebody's crazy, you know? And when we say that, we don't necessarily mean that he's clinically crazy and needs to be locked up. He's a psychopath. We're just saying what he says makes no sense. You know, he's, he's just being nuts. And so they may not be saying that he's literally demon possessed, but they're saying that the way he lives, that's just, that's beyond the pale. But then Jesus comes and, and he drinks wine and he eats normal food. And and they say, oh, well, he's, he's a glutton. And, and look at the people he hangs around. He's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And that's what they want to make the issue. But that's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is what they said. The issue is the word of God. And that's always the issue. So that, that brings us to the third question, which like the second grows out of this. Uh, the second grew out of the first the third goes out of the second what is that's the objective issue is somebody bringing the word of god so what is the issue to us it's always the same twofold issue here it is it's always is the word of god being brought and will we hear it that's the issue is it the word of god that is being brought to me and am i receiving it am i listening am i heeding Am I taking it to heart? That's the issue. That was their issue. They were hearing the word of God, but boy, what they did with it. They tried to make something else the issue, but no, that was the issue. They heard the word of God and they wanted no part of it, you see? Well, now, I guess that might be a good sermon right there because it is what scripture says. It's a powerful lesson, but I do want to go further. Roman numeral two, let's talk about the children of this generation. Because I think what we've learned from the children and about the children of that generation has a very powerful message for the children of this generation, of our generation. What are some things that we need to learn and face and think very seriously about? Well, first of all, we see many ministries. Letter A, many ministries, which is to say there might be, there can be many different kinds of ministries which are equally faithful and equally God-honoring, but have different styles. Like, for instance, suppose you just ask the question, what kind of preacher does God use? Well, uh, now I'm thinking of a preacher who is very intellectual. He seemed very bloodless, though. Uh, very unemotional. Um, I've got to say that though I'm theologically trained, I find his writing difficult to read and difficult to follow. And um, you don't get a whole lot of warmth and connection as as you expose yourself to this man's ministry. But could he be used by God? Could he be a faithful servant of God? If we say no, then we've just condemned Jonathan Edwards who was one of the leading forces of the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards was a very intellectual person. His writings survive, but boy, they are heavy slogging. (laughs) They are very heavy slogging. But God used him in a mighty way and continues to use his ministry. And then think of someone, I won't even be coy, think of someone who's pretty much his opposite, Charles Spurgeon. You read his sermons, you read his writings, you really feel like you're getting to know the person. I mean, he's right there. It it comes through very clearly. He's very... Uh, robust, he's, he's, you get the full man there as he opens God's word to you. He's very joyous. He's very uh, uh, worshiping of Christ and, and a great celebrator of the riches of Christ and the gospel of Christ. And he often had, a, a, well, he always had a sense of humor. And you see that all the times in his sermons. In fact, the story is told that, that after a sermon, there was a lady who rebuked him very sharply for daring to use uh, humor in the pulpit. And he's said to have responded, oh, dear sister, if you just knew how much I'm holding back, (laughs) you'd commend me instead of reprove me. Uh, And so would you say that Charles Spurgeon had a productive ministry? (laughs) Had and has. He being dead yet speaketh. But then again, go to the other side of the coin. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who ministered in uh, in London uh, during World War II. Very powerful ministry, but he believed that there was no place for humor in the pulpit and, and was very firm about that, even though he had a good sense of humor himself. And his style was, was very different from either of the two men I've just met. And, and John MacArthur's style is different from the three of them. So which one of them is a faithful servant of God? Well, they're all faithful servants of God. Oh, but they're such different styles. Yeah, well, you know, do you know why God didn't make roses only red? <laughs> and and, and, and posies only yellow? God seems to love endless variety and endless beauty. And he does that in his servants and he does that in the ministries. There's no one style that is the only so now I want you to think seriously about what are some of the things that the Bible says absolutely nothing about. Absolutely nothing about and yet they vex us so much. Well the Bible says sermons should be biblical sermons but how long should they be it it does it doesn't say anything about that at all and should they be preaching in the morning or the evening doesn't say anything what style deadly serious no jokes or no it doesn't say anything about about style just faithfulness just just truth to god's word that's what it says not dictated by the times but by faithfulness to god what tools can you use in preaching can you use powerpoint Can you use object lessons? Can you use people in illustrations? Prophets certainly did. They certainly did. The Bible doesn't say anything pro or con about that, Uh, about how fast you talk or how slow you talk. It just doesn't interest the Bible. What are some other things that don't interest the Bible and yet fascinate and totally control so many in this generation? Music style. What does the Bible say about music? It says that it should be spiritual songs sung by hearts filled with grace, to God, and to edify one another. Country? Classic? Hymn? Rock? What style? Absolutely nothing about that. Played with what instruments? Absolutely nothing about that. And yet I know it, a family that left a church that they believed was a faithful church otherwise when an electric guitar was introduced to the worship. Not any, no change in style otherwise, just another instrument and because it was an electric guitar. Now, if it had been an acoustic guitar with an electric microphone, that would have been okay. But put a plug in the guitar, that's a deal breaker. And I mean, instantly no discussion. No, we're teachable about this. We might be wrong. No, let's hash this out. See if we can work. No, they're absolutely gone. That was a deal killer. What does the Bible say about that? Absolutely nothing, not one thing. It doesn't say there have to be instruments. It doesn't say what they can be. Drums, the Bible says nothing about it. These are things that I have to conclude are absolutely not interesting <laughs> uh, it's a Scripture. Can there be a choir? Well, there's nothing about that, but the congregation should sing. That is in Scripture. Uh, but the rest, how many songs to sing? How many times to repeat a verse? <laughs> The Bible doesn't say anything about these things directly. So I conclude that these are things that are not important to God. What does he say? Well, he says, preach the word. Now, I won't belabor that because I'll belabor it in a minute or two. Uh, but uh, these are the things that the Bible doesn't say anything about. And we should care about them just as much as God does, which is apparently not much. Or he would have said something. Can I get an amen? Why, thank you. Letter B, however, on the other hand, it must be one message from God. Might be many styles, but it must be one message from God. With what focus? Turn to 2 Corinthians 4 5 with me. With one focus, just very simply. Paul says the first part of this chapter. Paul is saying we don't play games about ministry. We we don't do fancy, tricky things. We don't we don't try to uh, finagle our way by cleverness uh, into ministerial success. But what do we do? Verse five: For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So very clearly, when he gets to preaching. He's not talking about himself, his feelings, his thoughts, his experiences, his great conquests. He's talking about Jesus Christ and himself in so, only insofar as he is the servant of the people he's serving. Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the focus. And we, just your servants, because of Jesus Christ, the Lord. We're your slaves because we're his slaves. Jesus Christ as Lord. That's got to be the focus. If that's not the focus of a ministry, it is not a ministry of God. It is not a ministry that serves God. It's not a faithful ministry. And wisdom will not be justified by its works. Because that's got to be the focus. Jesus Christ. And so, preach Him, yes. But by what means? Turn to Colossians 3.16. In Colossians, Paul also says, we preach Christ. The substance and center of our message is Christ. If you can be around a ministry for any length of time at all and not hear much about Jesus Christ, probably not hearing a faithful ministry, judged by Scripture. But what does 3.16 say? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as I always say, when we look at this in some congregations, it would be a massive change for the word of Christ to indwell at all. But Paul says it should indwell richly. And this is not talking about individuals in the context. He's talking about the church. Word of Christ should be all over everything the church does richly. And what's the outgrowth? Oh, well, there is talk about music. But but in what context does it come? Please, beloved, please learn this. Please think about this deeply if you haven't. When does he bring music in? In what context? In the context of serving the ministry of the word. Not in the context of something important and independent and with its own vast uh, moment and note. But the songs there are in the service of saturating everybody with the word of God with the Word of Christ. The songs serve to further that purpose. They're filled, they're doctrinally rich, and they're filled with God's truth, and they reinforce God's Word. That's the means, the Word of Christ, indwelling dwelling richly. Turn to 1 Timothy 4.13, just on a little bit. Pointed word Paul gives to young uh, Pastor Timothy. Until I come, he says, 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Well, friends, that's exactly what we're doing right now. That's exactly what we're doing now. We read Scripture, we're exhorting its meaning and teaching what it means. And so he says, Do that. And, oh, that's it. That's the center. That's the heart. That's the one must do. Read. Exhort, teach. Of course, we'll just look for a moment briefly at the familiar 2 Timothy 4, just to remind us, how do you preach Christ Jesus' word? Well, you remember you're standing before God. Doesn't verse 1, 2 Timothy 4, 1, doesn't that turn Jesus' story on its head? Jesus' story, the children think they're in control and they're playing games and they want to call the games. But Paul says, I want you to remember that you're facing the judgment of God. When you stand, you stand before God. And one day his kingdom will come and you will be judged for what you did. This is totally different from the way the children thought in the public squares. And so charging him that way, he says what in verse two? Preach the word. In season, out of season, meaning when it's easy, when it's hard, when it's popular, when it's unpopular, when it's wanted, when it's hated. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, that one message has one center, which is preaching Jesus Christ as Lord, and it has one means, and that is preaching and teaching, explaining, exhorting the Word of God. That is what the one message we have must be. Styles may vary. The temperament of the preacher should be different because God makes different people. He doesn't make all out of a cookie cutter, all the same. He doesn't mean it to be that way. Styles can be, should be different, but the message must be the same. What did Edwards preach? Did Spurgeon preach? Did Lloyd-Jones preach? Does John MacArthur preach? The word of God, with Christ right in the center. Very different men. Same focus, same means. Do you see? Amen? Amen. And so... One issue to us. Let her see. One issue to us. What is that issue? Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We will see what they didn't see. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Very simple. Bless you. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What is it that we've heard? Go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God has spoken to us in Christ. Where does that leave us? Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. He who has ears, Jesus says, let him hear. And that's exactly what the writer says here. But he does not paint the word of God as being magical. We must pay attention to it. We must be sure that we don't drift from it. What is the one issue to us? Are we using our ears to hear the Word of God and clinging to it for all we're worth? Uh, to learn, turn to uh, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, which just starts a section, but that's all we'll read. Verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. I know with that, the deadening uh, sway of mysticism in our day. Somebody's going to read that and think, oh yes, if I ever hear God speaking in my heart, I'll make sure that I listen. That is not what he's saying. I'm not saying that it's not entirely what he's saying. It's not at all what he's saying. He has no, no interest in any writer of scripture to what we think we imagine God saying inside the quietness of our hearts. What they're always focusing on is God's Word through prophets, through inspired men. Scripture to us. And so what does he do when he says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, where's that coming from? Psalm 95. He quotes Scripture. Listen, he quotes Scripture written hundreds of years earlier and says that's what the Holy Spirit is saying today. And yet there are many people who think they're great lovers of the Holy Spirit and and, and great experts on the Holy Spirit who would walk into a meeting like this and walk right out and never come back. Why? Because they don't hear the Spirit speaking to them in the way that they're looking for. And indeed they don't. And indeed they wouldn't. Because we preach what the Holy Spirit says, which is Scripture. If you want to hear the Holy Spirit speak to you, there is one place you may go and one place you must go. And that is to Scripture. Scripture. So he quotes Psalm 95 and says, if you you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Well, can I let you in on something? You're all hearing his voice. I'm hearing his voice. As we read scripture, we're all hearing his voice. That's not the issue. Wisdom is justified by our works. The issue is, do we have ears to hear his voice or will we harden our hearts? Because one of the other always happens. We either hear or we harden, one or the other. So, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden uh, your hearts. So God has spoken. The issue to us is will we hear or will we play games with God and demand to have our way and obsess on trivialities like music style, like the color of the carpet, like the style of the music and, and, and so forth, and so on and on and on, everything except the word of God. We need to hear God's Word, and I I want to say this to you very clearly and explain what I mean. God's Word is supernatural. It's from God. It's breathed by the Holy Spirit. It is supernatural, but what isn't it? It isn't magic. What's magic? Magic is controlling elements, making things do things, and the Word of God doesn't control you. So I'll tell you, the actual truth of the matter is More preaching on hell in the pulpit might mean more hell in the street. Why? Well, because the more directly and confrontively men hear the word of God, the more they're driven to respond to it. And what are the only two ways of responding? Hearing or hardening. And how do those show themselves in action? The person who hears will sell everything to get the word of God and the person who hardens will do anything to shut it up to silence those who are speaking it. So as long as Christians are are wasting our time talking about nice little moral, therapeutic, deistic thoughts, uh, they're fine with that. It's no great threat to them. Stay in your church. Stay out of my life. But once we get out there and start speaking God's word in a a real and personal one-on-one way, well, now you're interfering. Now you're bothering me. You're pricking my conscience. You're reminding me what I already know in my heart and I'm already repressing, that I'm under God's judgment. So what can I do about that? I can only think of one thing to do, shut you up. So more preaching on hell in the pulpit might mean more hell in the street, not less, unless God moves to bring a revival. But it's not automatic because preaching is not magic and God's word is not magic. In fact, let's face very squarely the two challenges for us. Letter D, two challenges for us. The first challenge is reaching out to the lost. What's the issue there? Why is that a challenge? Well, look at Romans 8, 7. Romans 8, 7. Eighth chapter of Romans, verse 7. Romans 8, 7. What does Paul say? He says... For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. I'd probably translate that the the attitude produced by the flesh. This is the way the flesh thinks. When, When a person is in the flesh, he's unsaved. This is the way the flesh thinks. It hates God. It's not neutral, not searching for God, not could go either way. It's decided. It hates God. It does not submit to his law. In in fact, it's unable to do that. It does not have the power within itself to submit to God's law any more than a lion has the power within itself to become a vegetarian or a fish, to become an air breather. It's not its nature. Look more at 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 22 through 24. Right next door, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24. I talked about the two about two approaches to ministry. He says in verse 22, 1 Corinthians 122, for Jews demand signs, we'll see more of that in Matthew 11 and 12. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God just one more verse chapter 2 verse 14 the natural person which is to say the unregenerate person the unsaved person does not accept the things of the spirit of god for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them let me reinflect that he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the problem is that a person outside of Christ doesn't understand what we're saying and thinks it's the dumbest thing he's ever heard. And he doesn't know a lot about it, but he does know he hates it. And he doesn't want anything to do with it. The better he understands it, the more he hates it. And and I dare say sometimes when I I found that someone is not hating it yet, I think I haven't explained it well enough yet. because he'll either hate it or he'll repent. So, so Scripture says that uh, Christ crucified is folly. It's offensive. I mean, that's, that's the nature of the message. And so what is it we can do about that? Does Paul say that the natural mind uh, hates the things of God until we do certain methods? Does, does uh, he say that the, that the cross is folly to Gentiles until we explain it? In a sufficiently philosophical way, or it's offensive to Jews until we have a certain style of Jewish music in our worship that makes it less offensive, or something like that. You know, we meet on Saturday, will it be less offensive to them if we do that? No. No, hear hear me, brothers, hear me, sisters. There is not one thing we can do by human power to change this. This is the dynamic, this is what Scripture says. The only solution is a supernatural solution. The only solution is the sovereign grace of God. Otherwise, according to Scripture, no one will ever respond to God's word. And so Jesus says in John 6 that uh, all who the Father gives me will come to me. And he says, whoever is taught by God will come to me. But he says, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me, draw him. If anyone comes to Jesus, it is a sovereign act of God. God who selects, elects his people, gives his people to to his son. All the people he gives come and they come by God's drawing power. Everyone he gives the son comes, is taught by him and comes. And everyone who comes, the son will not cast out, keeps, raises up. But this is the power of God. John chapter 6, among many other places. John chapter 3. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 4. We were in 1 Corinthians. I'm saying 2 Corinthians 4. We were here a moment ago, but now we're going to look a little more broadly. 2 Corinthians 4, backing up to verse 3. He says, For even if our gospel is veiled. Oh, he he says it might be veiled. In other words, he's preaching, but people aren't getting it. What's the problem? Well, he's got to explain it better, right? And maybe he's got to change it. This is what many church growth experts say to do. When you go into a neighborhood, if you want to have a successful church ministry, you want to plant a church, here's what you do. You go to all the unbelievers and poll them about what they want to hear. And then you talk about that. But what does Paul say? It's veiled. Why is it veiled? Because he's a poor preacher? Oh no, it's veiled in those who are perishing Verse four, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Every time he preaches the gospel, every time we preach the gospel, Christ's glory is there. And it's there in front of their eyes. But like my friend who was blinded in the Korean War, after being blinded, he looked up at the sun and he saw nothing. Why had the sun stopped shining? No, his his eyes couldn't see. And so he says, Paul says, the apostle says of their hearts. So what can possibly change that? Well, all we can do, verse 5, is we proclaim Jesus Christ. But then verse 6, for God who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When God saves somebody, it is an act of sovereign grace that Paul likens to the act of creation. Is this the only place that he says that? Oh no, not at all. He says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. What does he say in Ephesians 2? For by grace you're saved through faith, and this is a gift of God. Uh, that offends many people. I, I don't he can't possibly be saying that grace and faith are gifts of God. He can't be saying that. Well, what does he say just a few words later? For we are his workmanship. What's the next word? created in Christ Jesus did you create yourself I sure did not that is the definition of sovereign grace and this is how God saves people he does what we cannot do for ourselves and that's how he saves us and that's what we're dependent on so there's no method we can do to counter this all we can do is preach Christ and pray for a movement of God now, there's the first challenge to, to reach the lost, and we need to know there's no method, there's no strategy, there's no scheme that we can do to make spiritual things happen. The second challenge is serving professedly Christian consumers. That's the word goes in that blank. Professedly Christian consumers. C-O-N-S-U-M-E-R-S. And I'm talking about the great sin of our day that infects not just the lost, but also professing Christians. Maybe you're not, you don't hear that word. What does it mean to say a, a professor? We're not talking about somebody in a lab coat with a hat and a blackboard. Professor meaning you profess to be a Christian. You claim to be a Christian. You say you are. Maybe you are, maybe you weren't, but you say you are. And these people I have in mind all say that they are. Now look at Second Timothy 4, and we'll take up where we left off. We left off with verse 2, but look at Second Timothy 4, verses 3 and following. Why should Timothy preach the word no matter what, conscious of God's judgment? Why should he? Why is it so important? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. What people? The world? No, the world has never endured sound teaching. Professing believers even will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What does that sound like to you? We piped and you wouldn't dance. We mourned and you wouldn't beat your breast. They're children demanding to control the game. And the game has to be played their way. And the game they don't want to play is they don't want to play the preach the word of God game. <laughs> they don't want to play that. They want to play something else. And they'll find someone who will play with them, accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Our big enemy today among professing Christians and outside the church is consumerism. There's a really good book, not an easy read, but a really good book called Above All Earthly Powers by David Wells. Let me read his description of this. He says, the line between commerce and belief is eroding. That is between business and religion. The line between commerce and belief is eroding, making it easy for people to think that there may be a market for religion, even as there is for goods and services, and that these two markets work in similar ways. Church is just like business. Have you ever heard that? I've sure heard that. I've sure heard that. So these two markets work in similar ways. The parallels are now being pressed so unwisely that the promotion of faith has come to be indistinguishable from the promotion of products. As if the dynamic of success in the one naturally duplicates itself in the other. What works in the business world will work in the church world, you see. Seekers become consumers, Pastors become business tycoons. Churches become marketing outlets. The gospel becomes a product. Faith becomes its purchase. And increasingly, the outcome in people's lives is no different than if they had made any other purchase. That arrow is right in the middle of the target. He's exactly right. Consumerism. So, I'll just be... I'll just be nakedly candid with you, speaking very personally now, the sort of conversation I've had countless times over the years, and I don't understand it any better now than the first time I heard it. It goes like this. Somebody says, I believe that the faithful preaching and teaching of God is the most needed and lacking important thing in our day. I'm with you but, see now there you lose me. <laughs> when you say that and then you say, but, that's when my eyes glaze over and you look. I look to you like you're speaking Lithuanian. You found a faithfully Bible teaching ministry, but the music isn't exactly what you prefer in your worship. But the length of the service isn't exactly what you like to give your Sundays to. But the makeup of the people, you know, you really wanted more black people or less black people. You wanted more single people or fewer single people. You wanted more kids or fewer kids. You wanted more, uh, you know, albino, hunchback, divorced, uh, Albanian, you know. You got to have your niche there, or you just, and the coffee bar and the lounge, and, you know, these are the things I need. The Word of God is the most important thing. I absolutely believe that. But, and like I said, am I making this up? Have you maybe had conversations like that? And I tell you, I don't for the life of me understand that. But then I'm a convert. I was a pagan. The Lord saved me from a cult when I was 17 years old. I loved rock and roll. I still love rock and roll. (laughs) I loved rock and roll. When I went to church, what did I want to hear? What did I want to hear? The same thing I had in the world. Unless Paul would say, God forbid. What did I want to hear? Give me God's word. I wanted to hear the word of God. I knew I needed the word of God. There's nothing like I, that I needed like I needed the word of God. And you know what? 45 plus years later, nothing's changed. Not one thing has changed. And the songs, well, I went to some churches where they sang hymns, loved those hymns. They brought truth to me that was new to me and I loved singing. them and it reinforced. I went to some others, they sang choruses, loved those too. They were Bible verses. They just sang and repeated a couple of times. That was fine. But did I care about any of that? Oh, I didn't care about any of that. Give me God's word. Give me God's word. 45 something years later, nothing's changed because I've, nothing's changed. That is the most important thing. And there's no but. There's, there's no but. You know, we went to a church for seven years in, in Sacramento. And the music was never exactly our style. Did we care? In that wasteland, we found a place that preached the word of God faithfully, that had people who practiced it. Did we care what kind of, kind of music they sang? No, not really. Not really. No, the main thing is the main thing. God says what the main thing is. And yet we seem to be about everything. But, oh, in theory, we're great warriors for the truth. We think the word of God is the most important thing. But we do demand to have a certain feeling in worship or a certain style or a certain experience or a some, certain level of entertainment in, in worship. And you know what? That but is a problem. And when we talk that way, who are we exactly like? We're exactly. We're exactly like the children in this story. But I wanted to play wedding. But I wanted to play funeral. You won't play my way? I won't play. You won't play my way? I won't play. So many professed Christians don't value God's word the way God uh, God values it. And we don't approach our lives as Christians. We don't approach it Humbly and hungrily to learn God's word and to serve, we approach it like consumers. We expect to be given our way, we expect to be catered to. We don't come thinking, What can I learn and how can I serve? but we think, How can they serve me and what can I be given? And God is not the focus, but we are. Now you say, Well, but that's silly. I mean, you don't go to Walmart to serve. That's right. It's a store. The church is different. We're not a store. We're not a business. We're a ministry and we have, uh, our CEO has told us exactly what matters to him most. I guess it's a good thing I said there's nothing in the Bible about sermon length, isn't it? I I will bring this to a close. I told you there was a lot in this passage though. In this way, when we're consumers, we're no different than Jesus' generation and there's no way to fix that. And once we become overly concerned about that, we will invariably start wandering from the mission we were given and lose our focus as this good thing, good thing, good thing, good thing, and suddenly we can't even see what our calling was because we've wandered so far from it. God forbid. God forbid. Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. So God has spoken. What shall we do? Shall we play games with God as that generation did? as our generation is, or shall we hear and shall we heed? I commend the latter. Let's take a moment to pray quietly. If you've got some action items, jot them down on your outline. Let's just pray together and I'll close, close our time. Oh, Father, I I don't know what to say beyond saying thank you for speaking. What an unspeakable gift that you've given us your word and that your word shows us your son, shows us our need and how we can know you through him. Thank you for all the richness of your unfolding your heart to us. Help us to treasure it as you treasure it. Help us to be faithful in our lives and ministries. In Jesus' name, amen.